In the wake of the Jesus movement's emergence from the underground, designated worship spaces, what we would call churches, began to be seen as sacred in and of themselves. How did this happen? According to Mary Kay Farag, it was the result of centuries of debate between ancient Roman jurists, Catholic bishops, artists, and theologians. Farag is assistant professor of early Christian studies here at Princeton Theological Seminary, and her research focuses on Christian liturgical practices in late antiquity and their role in the wider Greco-Roman, Byzantine, and Islamic worlds. In this episode, we speak with Farag about her book, What Makes a Church Sacred? Legal and Ritual Perspectives from Late Antiquity. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Mary. It's such a pleasure. Thank you, Sherry, for inviting me. So today we're talking about a book that you recently wrote, and I would love for you to start by sharing what sparked your interest in thinking about what makes a church sacred. That is a great question. The project really took shape, I have to say. Um, When I was reading two kinds of sources from late antiquity, one of them I ended the book with, um, and their stories preserved in Coptic and in Arabic translation of Coptic texts about the consecration of churches, Mm -hmm. the ritual that made a building a church in late antiquity and made it a sacred space. And these stories were uh, very fascinating. They're very, um, they had been difficult for scholars to understand because the, the stories seem sort of fantastic at at face value. Um, They generally describe a bishop um, and it's because bishops were um, the ones who would, you know, the ritual agents for consecrating a church, Uh, but it would be a first person narrative, you know, from the voice of a bishop from the 400s or 500s who uh, basically tells the story from his perspective of what happened Uh, where Christ and his court literally come down and join in this consecration. When I was first reading these stories, I had a hard time understanding why anyone would go through the trouble of composing such a text. Most people took them as just pious fiction, you know, folks who wanted to write an extended tale about how a, a church was consecrated and why it was sacred, namely by the agency of, you know, these heavenly beings themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that stuck with me, but um, it was, it was hard to try to understand how to analyze these sources. Yeah. So, so you started with the consecration stories and then where did that journey lead you? Well, um, in the midst of that, I met uh, John F. Matthews, who's a, who was um, a professor of Roman law at Yale University. And um, he, I, I did an independent study uh, with him, a directed reading course, um, so that I could learn Roman history from him. And he introduced me to Roman law. And I remember... Now I have to say that doesn't sound on the surface to be the most fascinating thing, but was it? <laughs> well, here's where it got fascinating for me. <laughs> he gave me a handbook that was written in the second century uh, by a jurist named Gaius. And 
it was organized um, with a book about persons, a book about things, and then a book about actions. And it's the sort of thing that was meant for um, as a teaching resource. You know, folks in the uh, Roman Empire who wanted to become lawyers, this would be, you know, one of the first texts they encounter from um, to learn the whole craft of um, being a lawyer, becoming a jurist, and so on. Um, and so when I read in that book, too, about things, that there was this category called sacred thing mm. in Roman law, and that he pinpointed the ritual of consecration as the event that made something a sacred thing. I was actually shocked because I thought this was something so basic I should have known it already. Um, and I was surprised that I didn't. I never knew that churches in late antiquity had a legal, a particular legal status if they were consecrated. Um, and so that took me on a journey. It was a welcome distraction from, you know, the stories that I couldn't make head or tail of. Um, <laughs> but it took me on a very long journey into Roman law. And I had a lot to learn. And I'm so grateful that I did learn it. Um, but I, I, I spent many years um, trying to understand this category sacred thing, and in particular, trying to understand what happened to it once the Roman Empire allowed Christianity to be a legal uh, practice with Constantine. Um, and then once it became um, officially, you know, the religion under Theodosius uh, in the fourth century. So lots of change going on in the fourth century and then lots of implications for what happens in the fifth and sixth centuries after that. So trying to, I, the first part of the book is really trying to tell the story of how it is that churches get slotted into this existing category of sacred thing, which wasn't made for Christian places of worship. It was made, you know, someone like Gaius has in mind when he's talking about this category, traditional Greco-Roman temples. Hmm. Um, but with Christianity becoming legal in the early fourth century, it become, it enters into this legal sphere um, legitimately for the first time. And so it gets slotted into this category. Um, and the first half of the book is telling the story of how that happens um, and how bishops um, tried to work with this category and tried to expand it to help it fit what churches were for. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about too. Um, you know, there's one way of understanding the word church to mean a gathered group of people, but we're really talking specifically about buildings. And of course that has implications for the people who gather there, but, um, but we're really talking about what makes a church building a sacred thing. That's exactly right. Although, um, I'm glad you brought that up because that has to do with the second part of the book where actually these two come together um, in very interesting ways. Um, so in the second part of the book, I really focus on the ritual of consecration. So, you know, thinking, okay, if the law specifies this is the event that makes a thing sacred, well, what are what's happening at these consecratory rituals, uh, which were major festivals in late antiquity, often multi-day festivals um, where you would have markets set up, 
people coming and visiting from lots of different places. It was, it was a major event for any city or town that would host something like this. Um, and you would have lots of bishops visiting often, um, a lot of dignitaries visiting from um, the imperial government. But anyway, um, in looking at those sources, mostly homilies, hymns, and also images installed in the churches, um, including the, the one that's on the front cover of the book. Um, the, so in looking at those sources, you hear actually a lot about the people. Yeah. You know, like you just pinpointed, um, and actually these, the, the bishops and their homilies um, focus a lot on how the church is merely a blueprint for what the souls of people at both the individual and the gathered community as a collective, um, what they ought, how they ought to be sacred, mm -hmm. um, which was very fascinating to me to see that at this major moment where um, a monumental church, where a lot of money and time and effort has been invested um, to make it absolutely beautiful. I mean, these were magnificent churches. Um, at that moment where everyone is gathering together to inaugurate it um, and to recognize it as a sacred place, you know, and legally recognize it so as such, um, you kind of get the place, it's downplayed. It's actually the people who are lifted up as the, the truly sacred um, I don't want to say thing, but the truly sacred individual and collective, um, which is what's absolutely fascinating to me. They they sort of uh, the, at this at this wonderful moment to celebrate the church. They actually say, you know, this is just a blueprint for you. Yeah. <laughs> That's all it is. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about legality and illegality and then think about the way that that then played out um, through people as, as things changed and shifted. So it seems that one of the central debates that bishops were engaging in in this um, quest to have a church building be defined as a sacred thing was, was getting this kind of legal status. So can you talk about that process and how it evolved? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um... So it was only natural uh, that as soon as um, Constantine allowed, tolerated Christianity um, with the Edict of Milan in 312, that um, you know, the existing legal structures would remain in place and that uh, the churches would kind of get slotted into that. And we see that already in his time um, that this is happening. Um, and what that, so I should say a little bit more about what this, what this means. So um, even for the classical jurists like Gaius, um, a sacred thing, the reason why you have the special designation um, in law that it's a sacred thing um, is because that comes with a lot of privileges. So, pr and primarily the privilege is that um, once a thing becomes sacred, it cannot undergo any transaction. It's inalienable. You can't sell it, you can't exchange it in perpetuity. Um, so it is forever this sacred place that is um, thought to be protected by God, um, and hence why there are all these uh, very strict rules about what you can and cannot do with sacred things. Um, in fact, even if 
a church or a, well for guys this time a temple um would undergo some kind of ruin say like an earthquake hit if it was a natural ruin or you know due to warfare or what have you say you end up with ruins it's still a sacred place and for so would the ruins be preserved or how would that play out well, they could, you know, you could renovate it and rebuild yeah. the place, um, but it's still, you, it, uh, you couldn't repurpose the land. Um, it had to be, remain a sacred site. Um, and, you know, so th- just to kind of give a sense of, um, you know, it, it, there's, there's nothing that could change its status. In other words, once mm. it's a sacred thing, um, it's protected by God forever, um, according to this legal understanding. Um, and, you know, where this gets difficult for Christians is that um, it kind of, it, well, it really put bishops in a catch-22, because prior to this legalization, um, bishops were already considered these uh, people who were protectors of the poor, um, watching out for the needy. Um, doing everything in their power to use the communal resources for the needy. Um, Be they poor, even, you know, if you have uh, like an elite person who ends up in need for some reason, you know, they're they're there for the needy. Um, And uh, unfortunately, once churches get church assets kind of get slotted into this category of sacred thing where it's very strict what you can and cannot do with it. That limits their ability to use the church's wealth in the ways that they're obligated to do. I mean, that we have um, canons that say this is their primary duty to care, um, to use the church's assets for the poor and the needy. Um, And so they end up in this catch-22 where there's a lot of wealth getting poured into the churches from Constantine onward, um, but very limited things that you can do with that wealth. You know, so they, unless they're getting um, donations that are specifically earmarked for the poor, um, you know, all that wealth that's poured in for the consecration uh, can't be used for that purpose. Um, And so I think that's, part of the reason why they take the time on these uh, occasions to actually pinpoint the importance of the people and their sacrality and why they are the true church, um, basically to make the point that all this wealth is for them. Um, And if it's not used for them, then it defeats the purpose, Um, which was a, it was hard for this to happen. It took, there were, there were, one really expensive project uh, was to ransom captives. And the church was clearly um, involved in this um, and would try to gather sums of money to do this. And you can imagine because of how expensive such a thing is, they would want to, you know, maybe take a golden chalice and melt it down. You could immediately make a lot of gold coins from something like that um, and immediately have, you know, a whole, uh, uh, raise the funds for ransoming captives. And so there are bishops who were doing this, um, and but it doesn't become legal uh, that you can um, use sacred things for the purpose of ransoming captives until quite late, until Justinian in the 500s. Um, so that already gives us a sense of how difficult of a process it was for bishops to try and get 
the strictures expanded, you know, and have exceptions in place to the rules um, that for specific reasons, yes, we can um, liquidate the sacred wealth for doing practices of mercy. That's so interesting. I, there's this sense in which these sacred things receive protection through the law, but then these church buildings are also intended to be a place of protection for others. And that that's a attention that needs to be negotiated through their legal system. That's fascinating. It is. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, and I think, so um, I, I, it led me to believe that uh, for the homilies that I just mentioned, that was why there's this focus on the people as opposed to the church, even though this moment was, um, all this effort went into celebrating the building, they're taking the opportunity to focus on the people. And then it finally brought me back to those stories that I couldn't make head or tail of. And I realized um, that these were, I, I, I believe that these stories are actually responding to the law uh, because they're written by folks who were not imperially endorsed bishops. So uh, by the middle of the fifth century, there had been um, a division among Christians and um, by Justinian's time in the 500s, it was clear that it's, it was one particular side of the dispute, you know, that was recognized by the government. Um, and those were the administrators of sacred things in the Roman it's Empire. It's the Chalcedonian. That's it's exactly the Chalcedonian right. Controversy. That's exactly right. Um, and so non-Chalcedonians, um, you know, were not considered um, the ritual agents, the, 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 the administrators of monumental churches. Um, and so they're, they're basically, you, you have the rise of like rival hierarchies, a Chalcedonian one and a non-Chalcedonian one, hierarchies of the clergy, I should say. And um, so the non-Chalcedonians are faced with this problem that their churches are not recognized by the government as sacred things. And so I think that's why um, they hyper-valorize the sacrality of the churches through these stories. Um, and I mean, in the most extreme way possible, um, say and demonstrate that their churches are sacred um, because actually the king in heaven, Christ, is the one who even conducted the ritual in some cases, um, or you know, Mary, the mother of God, is um, involved in the construction. Um, right. So and they're deferring to this even higher authority. That's exactly right. In order to say we don't need this intermediary of you know the imperial government, we don't need their stamp of approval. We have the stamp of approval from above. <laughs> mm. um, and so basically, trying to say. Uh, Yes, our churches are sacred um, for the same, you know, reasons that the law stipulates, except that the authority comes from a higher up place. Yeah, it, it's striking that throughout there, there's mention of power and money and authority, um, and it has just a ton of implications um, for how, for where things go in terms of uh, the classification of a sacred thing, but also how that relates to the people who are in those spaces. That's um, exactly right.
so can you tell us, um, you write about in the fourth century, there were trials that, that were really prominent. And I'm wondering if you could tell us about um, what happened with John Chrysostom. Oh, sure. Example of one of the trials that played out. Yes, absolutely. Um, So looking at the charges leveled against him, sure enough, uh, there were several charges that had to do with um, repurposing sacred things, um, asylum. Um, And so, you know, I read through um, the sources related to this. And what struck me the most was reading about a hospice that he tried to build for lepers and um, reading about how he was accused of um, repurposing wealth, sacred wealth in order to do this. When John Chrysostom was in the process of uh, building this hospice for lepers, he chose a riverside location so that they could cleanse their sores. But apparently neighbors (laughs) um, didn't like the idea of lepers cleansing themselves in the river and then the river continuing onto their properties. Um, And so they found a way to um, halt this project by saying that John Chrysostom was not using the proper funds to undertake this sort of thing. And in particular was um, liquidating sacred things. You know, it's illegal to to do so. You cannot um, repurpose sacred things. for such a purpose. And so accusing him that he was doing so, and they succeed in halting the project. Um, the orator, uh, the speaker of this oration, um, of this funeral speech, he specifically says that um, the roof never made it onto this building that was being constructed um, and paints this vivid image of, you know, this ideal that John Chrysostom had to um, show mercy to people who were really shunned in society. Um, I mean, lepers were really not even the most philanthropic people um, could bring themselves to do things for lepers in this time period. So really, if you could think of the neediest of the needy, the poorest of the poor, um, it would be lepers. And so painting this vivid image of John Chrysostom doing something um, very refreshing for them, a beautiful building on a riverside location um, and painting that vivid image in our minds of what he had planned and then contrasting that with what happens due to the malicious intent of neighbors. um, You know, you end up with this image in your mind of this unfinished building, you know, coming into ruins. um, And of course, lepers not having a home um, due to you know, the neighbors um, finding a way to ensure that this project does not come to completion. Um, and finding and so that a, legal, was... a legal way to halt that work. I mean, Mary, what comes to mind is this like still common argument, not in my backyard, you know, don't put poor people in my neighborhood or don't. Um, it just seems like this recurring theme throughout history um, that's playing out in a particular way around the concept of sacred things. Yes, absolutely. And I hope that also um, this book might be useful for Christian leaders today who have to think through these issues. 
Um, you know, for example, in the United States, when you have to think about how to repurpose a church when there's no longer a community gathering there and, you know, it doesn't make sense to continue having that prop property. Well, how do we repurpose this in a faithful way? Um, and like you just mentioned now, how do we work through these issues where, um, for whatever reason, uh, we're not being loving neighbors um, and to work with our communities to make that happen. Yeah, I thought a lot about church buildings, modern church buildings, as I was reading this, thinking about Europe and the United States right now and how many buildings are underutilized or the, you know, the church membership has dwindled, but they still have these incredible assets. And um, I wasn't sure how connected that was to your study, but it was on my mind a lot as I read it. So it sounds like you've been thinking about that as well when you think about Christian leaders today. Um, Absolutely. Say more about that. <laughs> oh, sure. Um, well, you know, I can't say I have answers for um, Christian leaders doing uh, have, being faced with these kinds of decisions today. But what I hope is that by seeing how Christian leaders of the past um, dealt with this with their own legal strictures in place and their own community dynamics, uh, whether healthy or dysfunctional, you know, how they try to be faithful leaders, um, no matter what, including folks like um, John Chrysostom, who, you know, really paid the price for things that uh, he believed were actually the right thing to do. Um, you know, to maybe... Um, those kinds of stories can give us hope and resilience and strength um, in hardship, uh, but also help us maybe think um, outside the box of what we can do. You know, of course, in, in the United States and Europe, the, the legalities are completely different. You know, they're not, um, churches aren't categorized as sacred things. Um, you know, my understanding in the U.S. is that they're typically um, nonprofit organizations. Um, and so there's a completely different uh legal landscape to this. Um, but, you know, and sometimes it can be helpful to think through the problems that an, a completely different society faces that are similar to our problems and just to see how they dealt with them. Yeah. One thing that also comes to mind when I think about that um, connected to some contemporary issues is there's a lot that you write about that has to do with donors. And this comes up a lot in, in decision-making processes and in particular, I was fascinated by the art, you know, there were mosaics and um, can you talk a little bit about the way that donors played into um, how some of these things moved forward uh, and the role of, of art and architecture in that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, most donors, when they um, would donate something to a church, um, would expect that it would follow these legal, this legal process, they would be consecrated and perpetuity. So uh, let's just, I'm, I'm going to just um, give an example from the fourth century with Ambrose of Milan. Um, so he uh, write, writes that uh, a response to claims that people are making about what he did with sacred vessels. Um, so let's imagine it like a chalice uh, that he melted down um, for the ransom of captives. And uh, folks accused him. It seems like by his time, it seems that the donor, the actual donors um, were no longer alive, but there were people who carried on the memory of this donation. And 
he was accused of um, liquidating sacred assets that ought to have been, that chalice should have remained in perpetuity, a sacred chalice. Um, and so the way he kind of argues himself out of this is to, to say um, that the true gold lies in, the, these captives are the true gold, you know, not mm. this chalice. And so actually when you melt down the chalice, get the coins to ransom these captives, you've actually put the donor's donation on a whole new scale. It sort of, it, it amplifies the donation. Um, whereas, you know, the other side would say, you know, the donor gave this chalice say for, um, in perpetuity for, so for folks to pray for them, for the salvation of their souls. And you've interfered with this exchange uh, between the donor and the heavenly realm. Um, you know, and, and so what, how Ambrose would argue against this would be to say, actually, no, um, well, it is true that I've interfered with this exchange, but actually to make it an even greater um, exchange than it was before. Uh, so that it is actually, it becomes true gold as opposed to what we know of as, as gold <laughs> commodities. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm curious, as you've, as you've studied this, how has this work shaped how you think about sacred things uh, in, in our world today? I've spent so much time trying to live in late antiquity and understand that world for what yeah. it is, um, that I often you know, when I'm walking around here, looking around and seeing, you know, the things that are happening today that would have been considered just um, beyond imagination for folks in this time. Um, you know, when it, say, for example, a church gets sold and gets transformed into a restaurant, a gorgeous restaurant with stained glass and everything. But, you know, for um, folks in this time period, in particular, lawyers and bishops, um, I think if they if they were to come back and see that, um, would kind of shudder at the thought um, that a sacred place could become something, um, you know, completely what they would consider uh, not sacred. Um, but then again, you know, we can also see how they dealt with the same, they were actually doing the same thing in their own time you know, we don't have a particular example where a place becomes a restaurant, uh, but we have cases where uh, those sites get confiscated and used for other purposes. Um, it becomes increasingly common that they actually get confiscated and given to imperially recognized bishops to become um, their sacred places for them. Um, and sometimes this involves re-consecrating the place um, or also having these rituals that, um, what's the word, um, like expel demons from the place. Mm. Um, and so, you know, you can, you can look back and see how in, uh, their society, they were doing exactly the same things, um, that they might come back here and, 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 uh, push us about, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. There's still these similar impulses and conflicts within the social fabric that we, we live in, even though the, uh, the landscape has changed, the technology has changed, um, but the human struggle <laughs> remains. Oh, absolutely. 
It's amazing how true that verse from Ecclesiastes is that there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Mary. Thank you, Sherry. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Sushama Austin Connor, and Sherry Osting. Our producer is Brooke Mateka. Like what you're hearing? Subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And while you're at it, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. The Distillery is a production of the Office of Continuing Education at Princeton Theological Seminary. Find out more at thedistillery.ptsem.edu. Until next time, thanks for listening.